In last week's program, I shared with you Part 1 of AARP Bulletin's 15 Lessons the Pandemic Taught Us. Topics included self-care, medicine, savings, technology, and work. This week, in brief, the experts share their wisdom on trust, crowds, loneliness, nature, stability, inequality, telemedicine, and our changing cities. We begin with Lesson 8, Our Trust in One Another Has Frayed, But It Can Be Slowly Restored. Historian John M. Berry, author of The Great Influenza, says, Truth matters, but it requires messaging and patience. A 2019 Pew survey found that the majority of Americans say most people can't be trusted. It's even tougher to trust in the future. Only 13% of millennials say America is the greatest country in the world, compared with 45% of members of the silent generation. No wonder that by June of last year, national pride was lower than at any point since Gallup began measuring. As life returns, look beyond your familiar pod. Distrust breeds distrust, but hope isn't lost for finding common ground, especially for older people, says Encore.org's Friedman. Even in the era of OK Boomer and OK Millennial, memes that dismiss entire generations with an eye roll, divides are bridgeable with what Friedman calls proximity and purpose, rebuilding trust together across generations under shared priorities and common humanity. He points to pandemic efforts like Good Neighbors from the home-sharing platform Nesterly, which pairs older and younger people to provide cross-generational support, and UCLA's Generation X Change, which connects Gen X mentors with children in grades K-3 through in South Los Angeles, where educational achievement is notoriously poor. Engaging with people for a common goal makes you trust them, he says. Be patient, but verify facts. History also provides a guide. In the wake of the 1918 influenza pandemic that killed between 50 million and 100 million people, trust in authority withered after local and national government officials played down the disease's threats in order to maintain wartime morale. Historian Barry points out that the head of the Army's Division of Communicable Diseases was so worried about the collective failure of trust that he warned that civilization could easily disappear from the face of the earth. It didn't then, and it won't now, Barry says. Verify facts and then decide. Check reliable, balanced news sources such as Reuters and the Associated Press and unbiased fact-checking sites such as PolitiFact before clamping down on an opinion. Perhaps most important, be open to changing conditions and viewpoints. As we see vaccines and therapeutic drugs slowly gain widespread success in fighting this virus, I think we'll start to overcome some of our siloed ways of thinking and find relief, together as one, that this public health menace is ending, Barry adds. We have to put our faith in other people to get through this together. Lesson number nine, the crowds will return, but we will gather carefully. Masks and sanitizers will be part of the norm for years, the way airport and transportation security measures are still in place from 9-11. 
says Christopher McKnight Nichols, Associate Professor of History at Oregon State University and founder of the Citizenship and Crisis Initiative. The COVID-19 pandemic won't end with bells tolling or a ticker tape parade. Instead, we'll slowly, cautiously ease back to familiar activities. For all our fears of the coronavirus, many of us can't wait to resume a public life. When 1,000 people 65 and older were asked which pursuits they were most eager to start anew post-pandemic, 78% said going out to dinner, 76% picked getting together with family and friends, while 71% chose travel. Seeing art, attending concerts, cheering in a stadium, even going to class reunions we might have once dreaded, we'll do them again. But how will we return to feeling comfortable in groups of tens, hundreds, and thousands? And will these gatherings be different? How we come together? Don't expect the same old, same old. Just as the rationing, isolation, and economic crisis caused by World War I and the Spanish flu epidemic led to a kind of awakening of how we assembled, Nichols says, expect COVID to shake up the nature and personality of our public spaces. Back in the 1920s, it was a rise of jazz clubs, organized athletics, fraternal organizations, and the golden age of the movie cinema. As the pandemic subsides, we'll probably see more temperature-controlled outdoor events and dining spaces, more pedestrian and bicycling options, more city parks, and more hybrid events that give you the option to attend virtually. Retrain your brain. Psychologists say the techniques of cognitive behavioral therapy can help people at any age regain the certainty and confidence they need to venture into the public space post-pandemic. Visualizing good outcomes and repeating a stated goal can help overcome whatever obstacles are holding you back, says Gabrielle Ottingen, a professor of psychology at New York University, who suggests making an if-then plan to reacclimate to public life. If eating indoors at a restaurant is too agitating, even if you've been vaccinated, then try a table outside first. If a bucket list family vacation to Italy feels too daunting, then book a stateside trip together first. There's always an alternative if something stands in the way of you fulfilling your wish, she says. Eventually, you'll get there. Lesson 10. Loneliness hurts health more than we thought. What we've learned from COVID is that isolation is everyone's problem. It doesn't just happen to older adults, it happens to all of us, says Julianne Holt-Lundstedt, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. How deadly is the condition of loneliness? During the first five months of the pandemic, nursing home lockdowns intended to safeguard older and vulnerable adults with dementia contributed to the deaths of an additional 13,200 people compared with previous years. According to a shocking Washington Post investigation published last September, people with dementia are dying, the article notes, not just from the virus, but from the very strategy of isolation that is supposed to protect them. Isolation may be the new normal. 56% of adults age 50 plus said they felt isolated in June 2020, 
doubled the number who felt lonely in 2018, a University of Michigan poll found. Rates of psychological distress rose for all adults as the pandemic deepened, increasing sixfold for young adults and quadrupling for those ages 30 to 54, according to a Johns Hopkins University survey. And it's hard to tell whether the workplace culture many of us relied on for social support will fully return anytime soon. Those 50-plus have a leg up. Older adults with higher levels of empathy, compassion, decisiveness, and self-reflection score lowest for loneliness, says Dilip Jeste, MD and director of the Sam and Rose Stein Institute for Research on Aging at the University of California, San Diego. Research shows that many older adults have handled COVID psychologically better than younger adults. With age comes experience and wisdom. You've lived through difficult times before and survived. Help yourself by helping others. Jeste says that when older adults share their wisdom with younger people, everyone benefits. Young people are reassured about the future, he adds. Older adults feel even more confident. They're role models. They are contributors. And that matters. Lesson 11. When your world gets small, nature lets us live large. For older people in particular, nature provided a way to shake off the weight and hardships associated with stay-at-home orders, of social isolation, and of the stress of being the most vulnerable population in the pandemic says Kathleen Wolfe, a research social scientist at the School of Environmental and Forest Sciences at the University of Washington. One silver lining to COVID-19's dark cloud? Clouds themselves became more familiar to all of us. So did birds, trees, bees, shooting stars, and window gardens. Nearly six in ten Americans have a new appreciation for nature because of the pandemic, according to one survey that also found three-quarters of respondents reported a boost in their mood while spending time outside. By nearly every measure, the planet got more love during COVID. And wouldn't it be nice if that continued going forward? The ins and outs of our new outdoor life. Move somewhere greener. Well, at least move around more outside. How you access nature is up to you, but consider the options. Nearly a third of Americans were considering moving to less populated areas, according to a Harris poll taken last year during the pandemic. Walking, running, and hiking became national pastimes. One day last September, Boston's Blue Bikes bike share system saw its highest ever single-day ridership with 14,400 trips recorded. Stargazers and birdwatchers helped push binocular sales up 22%. Once known mainly as a retirement activity, pickleball has been the fastest-growing sport in America, with almost 3.5 million U.S. players of all ages participating in the contact-free outdoor net game designed for players of any athletic ability. The return of the pandemic victory garden reflects research that finds 79% of patients feel more relaxed and calm after spending time in a garden. Make the city less gritty. The University of Washington's Wolf thinks that our collective nature kick will go beyond a run on backyard petunias. Her research brief on the benefits of nearby nature in cities for older adults suggests that we may rethink the design of neighborhood environments to facilitate older people's outdoor activities. 
That means more places to sit, more green spaces associated with the health status of older people, safer routes and paths, and more allotment for community gardens. It's impossible to overestimate the value of these outdoor spaces have on reducing stressful life events, improving working memory, and adding meaning and happiness in older people's lives, Wolf says. If you can't get out, bring nature in. Even videos and sounds of nature can provide health gains to those shut indoors, says Mark Berman of the University of Chicago's Environmental Neuroscience Lab. Listening to recordings of crickets chirping or waves crashing improved how our subjects performed on cognitive tests, he says. Above all, the environment is in your hands, so take action to protect it. We've seen a lot of older folks stepping up their activity in trail conservation, stream cleaning, being forest guides, and things like that this year, which indicates a shift in how that age group interacts with nature, says Cornell University gerontologist Carl Pillimer. There's an old saw that older people care less than younger people about the environment, but given this year's nature boom, I'm expecting that to change. As the generation that gave birth to the environmental movement enters retirement, we're likely to see a wave of interest in conservation among those 60 and up. Lesson 12. You can hope for stability, but best be prepared for the opposite. COVID-19, perhaps more than any other disaster, demonstrated that we need to continue ensuring response plans are flexible and scalable. You can't predict exactly what a disaster will bring, but if you know what tools you have in your toolkit, you can pull out the right one you need when you need it. That from Linda Mastrandrea, Director of the Office of Disability Integration and Coordination for the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The pandemic was among the toughest slap-in-the-face moments in recent history to remind us that everything, Everything in our lives can change in a moment. While older Americans may have a deep-seated desire for stability and security, after all it took to get to an advanced age, we certainly cannot bank on it. Which is why the word of the year, and perhaps the coming century, is resilience. Not just at the individual level, but at every social tier, from family to community to the nation as a whole. Banish fear. We don't have to live in fear of some looming disaster, says former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Tom Frieden, now president and CEO of Global Public Health Initiative, Resolve to Save Lives. By strengthening our defenses and investing in preparedness, we can live easier knowing that communities have what they need to better respond in moments of crisis. Preparation must start at the top. For government, that means a new commitment to plans that allow, not so much for stockpiles, but for the ability to ramp up production of crucial equipment when needed. We need increased, sustained, predictable base funding for public health security defense programs that prevent detect, and respond to outbreaks such as COVID-19 or pandemic influenza, Frieden says. Being creative and even entrepreneurial helps, says Jeff Schlegelmilk, 
director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Warehouses full of masks could have helped us initially, he says, but stockpiles of equipment aren't the answer on their own. In a free market, there is pressure to sell off surpluses, so he suggests we reimagine our manufacturing capacities for times of emergency. When whiskey distillers stepped up to make hand sanitizer and auto manufacturers switched gears to build ventilators, we saw glimmers of solutions, Schlegelmilk says, the sort of responses we may need to tee up in the future. Focus on health care. Prime among the areas that need to be addressed, crisis management consultant Liz Hargraves says, are overwhelmed health care systems. They were living a disaster before the pandemic. When the pandemic came, it was a catastrophe. But Hargraves hopes we will use this wake-up call to produce new solutions rather than to return to old ways. Extraordinary times, he says, call for extraordinary measures. Lesson number 13, wealth inequality is growing and it affects us all. It's outrageous that somebody could work full-time and not even be able to pay rent, let alone food and clothing. There's a recognition that there's a problem on both the left and the right. This is from Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize-winning economist, Columbia University professor, and author of The Price of Inequality. The data is pretty dramatic, said Stiglitz, one of America's most esteemed economists, Government economists estimate that unemployment rates in this pandemic are less than 5% for those highest earners, but as high as 20% for the lowest paid ones. People at the bottom have disproportionately experienced the disease, and those at the bottom have lost jobs in enormous disproportion, too. As white-collar professionals work from home and stay socially distant, Frontline workers in government, transportation, and health care, as well as retail, dining, and other service sectors, face far greater health risks and unemployment. We try to minimize interactions as we try to protect ourselves, he says, yet we realize that minimizing those interactions is also taking away jobs. The disparate effects of the pandemic are particularly evident along racial lines, points out Jean Axios, AARP Senior Vice President for Global Thought Leadership. Job losses have hit communities of color disproportionately, he says, and there's a health gap with people of color as well, who have a greater likelihood than white Americans to be frontline workers, experiencing higher rates of COVID-19 infection, hospitalizations and mortality, and lower rates of vaccinations. What we're seeing is a double whammy for communities of color, Axia says. It is hitting them in their wallets, and it's hitting them with regard to their health. Those economic and health crises, along with protests over racial injustice over the past year, says Axios, have really sparked major conversations around what do we need to do in order to advance equity in this country. A rising gap between rich and poor in any society, Stiglitz argues, increases economic instability, reduces opportunities and results in less investment in public goods, such as education and public transportation. 
but the country appears primed to make some changes that could help narrow the wealth gap, he says. Among them are President Biden's proposal to raise federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, increase the earned income tax credit for low-income workers, and provide paid sick leave. Stiglitz also proposes raising taxes on gains from sales of stocks and other securities not held in retirement accounts. The notion that people who work for a living shouldn't pay higher taxes than those who speculate for a living seems not to be a hard idea to get across, Stiglitz says. Many people continued to say, it's time for us to get back to normal, Axia says. Well, going back to normal means that we're in a society where those that have the least continue to be impacted the most, a society where older adults are marginalized and communities of color are devalued. We have to be honest with what we are going through as a collective nation, and then we have to be bold and courageous to really build a society where race and other social demographic factors do not determine your ability to live a longer, healthier, and more productive life. Who owns America's wealth? Here are some statistics. In 1989, the top 10% richest Americans owned 67% of the wealth. In 2019, that rose to 76%. The next 40% in 1989 owned 30% of the wealth, and that reduced to 22% in 2019. And finally, the bottom 50% owned 3% of the wealth in 1989, 1% in 2019. Want a positive reminder of the American way? When the going got tough this past summer, many people responded by planning a new business. In the second half of 2020, there was a 40% jump over the prior year's figures in applications to form businesses highly likely to hire employees, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Significantly, no such spike occurred during the Great Recession, points out Alexander Bartik, assistant professor of economics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. That's cause for some optimism, that there are people who are trying to start new things, he says. One possible reason this time is different. Unlike during that recession, the stock market and home values have held on, and those sources of personal wealth are often what people draw upon to fund small business startups. Lesson 14, the benefits of telemedicine have become indisputable. The processes we developed to avoid face-to-face care have transformed the way we approach diabetes care management, said John P. Martin, M.D., co-director of Diabetes Complete Care for Kaiser Permanente, Southern California. If there was ever any truth to the stereotype of the older person whose life revolved around a constant calendar of in-person doctor appointments, it's certainly been tossed out the window this past year due to the strains of the pandemic on our health care system. The timing was fortuitous in one way, Telemedicine was ready for prime time and has proved to be a godsend, particularly for those with chronic health conditions. Say goodbye to routine doctor visits. Patients who sign up for remote blood sugar monitoring at Kaiser Permanente 
Use Bluetooth-enabled meters to transmit results via a smartphone app directly to their health records. Remote monitoring allows us to recognize early when there should be adjustments to treatment, Martin says. We need to push for more access. The pandemic underlines the need for more home-based medical help with chronic conditions, but that takes both willingness and a lot of gear, such as Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure monitors and, on the doctor's side, systems to store and analyze the data. People need access to the equipment, and healthcare systems have to be ready to handle all that data, says Mursky of Massachusetts General Hospital. Group doctor visits may be a way forward. Mursky is conducting a virtual group visit and remote monitoring of blood sugar for his patients with type 2 diabetes. Instead of having a few minutes with each person to talk about important issues like blood sugar testing, diet, and exercise, we get an hour or more to go over it, he says. At every meeting, somebody in the group has a great tip I've never heard of, like a new YouTube exercise channel or fitness app. There's group support, too. I see group visits like this continuing in the future, becoming part of routine chronic disease care for all patients who want it. Lesson 15. Our cities won't ever be the same. This is obviously a very big watershed moment in how we live how we organize our cities and our communities. There are going to be long-lasting changes, says Chris Jones, chief planner at Regional Plan Association, a New York-based urban planning organization. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. Petula Clark sang that in her 1964 chart-topping Ode to City Life. Well, things change. Suddenly, crowds are the enemy. Public buses and subways are health risks. Packed office towers out of favor, and a roomy suburban home seems just where you want to be. But don't write off downtowns yet. The office and business district will look different. Many workers have little interest in returning to a 9-to-5 life. For those who do make the commute, they may find cubicles replaced with more flexible workspaces focused on common areas with ample outdoor seating space for meetings and working lunches. And some now-empty offices will likely be converted into apartments and condos, making downtowns more vibrant. Now you have an opportunity to remake a central business district into an actual neighborhood, said Richard Florida, author of The Rise of the Creative Class and a co-founder of City Lab, an online publication about urbanism. Public spaces will serve more of the public. Those areas set up for outdoor restaurant dining, some of those will likely remain. Streets and parking lots have been turned into plazas and promenades. Many cities have already opened miles of bike lanes. In 2020, Americans bought bikes, including electric bikes, in record numbers. This idea of social space where you can get outside and enjoy an active public realm is going to become increasingly important, said Lynn Richards, the president and CEO of Congress for the New Urbanism, which champions walkable cities. Contributors to this report were Sari Harar, David Hockman, Rhonda Kaysen, Lexi Pandell, Jessica Revitz, and Ellen Stark. It is encouraging that much of what the experts are telling us is positive, that we have indeed had some positive outcomes from the pandemic, and that there is potential for more progress in the future. 
However, the fact that ageism and wealth inequality continue to hold many of us back is discouraging. Those are areas where senior voices need to be heard. Thanks for listening, and until next week, I'm Kathy Van Skoik.